have a problem, guys. Every morning, the first thing I think about doing is going to my phone and cleaning out my inbox. Because yes, being organized gives me a sense of peace, a sense of calm, really. But it's also a huge waste of time. Honestly, I'm tuckered out. See what I did there? From trying to get to the inbox zero status. Thankfully, there is a sane solution to this. Sane box is the easiest way to automatically organize your inbox and keep it that way forever. Sanebox sorts your emails for you, keeping unimportant emails out of your inbox. You know, with subject lines like youareawinner.com, so you can focus on what really matters. With just a few clicks, Sanebox automatically gets your email under control and makes keeping it that way forever super easy. It also has some sweet features like one-click unsubscribe, which sends annoying emails into the aptly named black hole, and automatic tracking of messages that haven't received replies so you can see what needs following up. See how Sanebox can help you reclaim your time and attention with a free two-week trial. Visit sanebox.com slash tuckered out today to start your free trial and get a $35 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash tuckered out. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. First off, I want to apologize for sounding extra raspy today. I just survived two days in Vegas. And as many of you know, Vegas does things to people like destroys their lives in the best way possible. But I had to be here to do this intro. One of my favorite things about this podcast is connecting to childhood friends who have been like family to me, it's basically the best excuse to make them catch up with me. And the one thing I'm learning is that all my family friends have grown up to be trailblazers. I feel super, super lucky I had a chance to grow up with them. And you know, I'm sure they feel the same way about me. One of the foremost global leaders on social impact and innovation, Sonal Shah has started and led social impact efforts in academia, government, and the private and philanthropic sectors for over 25 years. She is the president of TAF, the Asian American Foundation, which is a convener, incubator, and funder committed to accelerating opportunity and prosperity for API communities. And, you know, Sonal is one of those people that I always knew was doing amazing things. I've always been in awe of her. I just never knew exactly what she was doing. So today I actually get a chance to find out what this awesome trailblazer has been up to. I hope you enjoy my interview with Sonal Shah. Are you in DC or New York? I'm in Houston. Oh my God, you're in Houston. Jesus. I know. When did this happen? This happened a while ago? Um, I came here during the pandemic and then okay. I basically base out of here and go back and forth to DC. 
Are you with mom and dad or yeah. are you? Yeah. Aw, same house? Yeah. Same house. Uh, I remember many days at your house, many, many days uh, when I was stuffing envelopes for Indicor. I have no idea actually what I was doing, but I, I just remember right? your, brother, your, brother, your brother was telling me to do stuff. I was like, sure. No idea. That's, That's what I did too. Yeah. Like, what I do know, you need? Totally. What do you need? Why are we putting it? Okay, whatever. Yeah. Just, I was like, why, Anna, so why are you yelling at me again? Then, I don't understand. <laughs> like, what's what's happening? <laughs> what? <laughs> I was like, why didn't I drink alcohol back then? That would have helped me. I yeah. know, right? I like, after I, ten, I have to tell you, like, he's ten years younger than me, and, oh, younger than me, and I'm still, I still was like, okay, whatever. Just tell me what you want. Yeah, I think with him, you just gotta just <laughs> smile. There's some vision. <laughs> don't know. Okay, let's just let's just go for it. President of Asian American Foundation. All right. What was the moment this was this foundation was conceived? Where were you? Who were you with? How did you decide who you wanted to partner with? Well, let's uh, historically let's go back a little bit. So this was okay. this started with ADL, the Anti Defamation okay. League had been seeing anti hate incidents against Asian Americans in February of 2020, and they reached out to the Asian American community and said, you know, you all should see what these incidents are looking like. We're capturing this around the country. Are you going to do something about it? So my right. so my board came together and said we need to do something. And you know these are not you know these are big players, right? You have right. Lee Lu, who's the chairman of the board, and he runs Himalayan Capital. Um, you know you have Joe Bay, who's the president of KKR. You've got Jerry Yang, co-founded Yahoo. They they realized they needed to do something, and what we have is and so we we in the summer decided we need to we should think about creating a foundation and organization. And as we're doing this, we're seeing the incidents increase. Right. Um, and so we see lows, but then we see a sharp rise again. And then come January after the election, we're starting to see even more and we're seeing even more incidents. And I think I read on your site, it was like a rose more than 160%. Yeah. And some, and some, and in places like New York city, more than 800%, right? Like you just started, you started to see these, these um, tremendous spikes. Um, and so we were like, well, we can't just come up with a strategy and think about strategy. We actually just need to launch the organization. And the right. board itself committed $125 million over five years. Like that's a serious commitment, right? Like the board members are like, we're in. And, Is that the largest commitment from a board for a foundation? For an Asian American, for the Asian American community? Absolutely. Wow. And so then we started, then one of our board members was like, listen, um, why are we just doing, why can't we go see if other people want to partner with us? Let's go talk to foundations. We looked at this number. The number said Asian American organizations get only 0.5% of foundation resources, 0.5%. Why is that? Um, people say they're too scattered. People don't think our community needs anything. These stereotypes, like you're a wealthy community. You don't need anything from us. Mm -hmm. So all these communities aren't getting any money, any, any, you know, uh, support. And that is like, you know, the, you're talking about the Hmong communities. You're talking about the Southeast Asian communities, you're talking about the Vietnamese American communities. We're talking about the Pakistani community, Bangladeshi community, less than 0.5% of the resources. We are 7% of the population. That's crazy. So 23 million, right? 23 us? million of us. And we get 0.5%. So our board was like, listen, we can gather more people to support with us and support these organizations. And within a six week period, we raised $1.1 billion. In towards, six weeks? In six weeks. 
Holy God. started calling people, started saying, listen, we would like to put this giving challenge together. We think you can support us. And not all of it comes to tap. So be fair. It's, you know, uh, 10% of it comes to tap, but the rest of the money is, is dedicated to the community itself. They're going to increase their giving. They're going to make sure AAPIs are on TV, make sure they're promoting AAPIs, make sure ERGs internally in companies are incorporating AAPIs. So this is sort of like a commitment to the AAPI community that corporations, foundations, and individuals made. When you mean giving it to the community, you're giving it to various organizations that focus on the community is that, so is multiple that it parts. Is? It's giving to okay. organizations that focus on the community. It's promoting and using your marketing dollars to promote the community. It's supplier diversity, making sure AAPIs are part of getting access to contracts and companies. It's also making sure that uh, foundations are considering AAPI organizations to give more larger grant pools too. So right. what's been amazing is, let me just give you a couple of examples. So yeah. AAJC, which is a civil rights organization for the AAPI community, has received a lot more money. We gave them a $1 million commitment, but lots more organizations now have given them money and they're scaling. Stop AAPI Hate, which came up with the first index of you know how much is going on. All the numbers we use come from Stop AAPI Hate. And they've gotten a commitment from the state of California now for $10 million. So we gave them a million dollar grant. So now what happens is when, when we step in, it matters because then all of a sudden people are paying attention. Right. And you guys, I don't know if you want to call it pillars, but again, reading on, on the site and what you guys are doing, you are obviously um, looking at anti-hate crimes, stopping them, supporting data and research, and then education. And education includes K through 12 curriculums that highlight accomplishments of Asian Americans uh, and Pacific Islanders throughout American history, which is amazing because I think growing up, you and I know we never saw that in our schools. Um, I can't even imagine it. So since the launch, which is this year, right? Yeah, just like in six May. Months ago, just May. Just in May. How have you seen the foundation affect each of these focus areas? So in anti-hate, I think um, that's a large chunk of our money has been focused. We've given $10 million, you know, since we launched, okay. um, you know, uh, almost more than half of it has gone to anti-hate initiatives. And that is okay. about, uh, you know, making sure that we're funding these organizations like AAJ, AAJC, Stop AAPI Hate. Um, but also just recently we lost and uh, launched another $4 million in grants for anti-hate national organizations like the Sikh Coalition, uh, right. SALDAF. Uh, IYFC, Interfaith Youth Corps, um, you know, bullying in schools, making sure we're looking at hate at an intergenerational perspective. So what's happening in K through 12 in schools? What's happening on you know, college campuses? How are we engaging faith communities? How are we making sure we're engaging community centers? So right. we launched these action centers as a pilot in three cities, Oakland, Chicago, and New York City to, there's a one place to go to if something happens to you for you to get access to resources and know where to go if something happens to you. That's a hate incident, a hate crime. They connect you to the government. They can connect you to um, to journalists. They can connect you to services. But that's the place to go to. So we recognize we have to do it nationally and locally. But anti-hate, okay. we're really investing in data and research. We're about to give, we've given a grant to the Pew Research um, to really dig disaggregated data into the AAPI communities. You know, we're over 40 ethnicities, 25 different, you know, um, 
uh, Pacific Islander communities to lump us into one category of AAPI without understanding the, 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 the each and every part of our community is important. So that's what Pew right. is doing. We also um, gave a grant to the Urban Institute and Data and Research. They did a survey of all of the AAPI organizations in the United States. So we know what their needs are and what their challenges are. And we continue to use that research to guide uh, us moving forward. And on the okay. on the education piece, you know, again, we're funding this organization called the Asian American Education Project. So they're creating curriculum for K through 12 to teach about AAPI education in the United States. I mean, Asian Americans have been in the United States since the 1800s. I know. And that story is never told. It's never told. I, I didn't even know that, honestly. Right? We all think we're first generation immigrants as opposed to like, like, listen, a- Asian Americans have been here since the 1800s. Yeah. The Chinese- we're, we're, not, we're not the OGs like we think we are. Right. The Chinese right, American right, right. Exclusion Act, the Chinese Exclusion Act was in 1882 to keep families of Chinese, the Chinese coming into the United States. Like this was created in 1882. You know, Vincent Chen's murder was in 1982. Like this is not new and we need to know our own history. Yeah. So I I had a question about that. So, you know, you you mentioned 40 ethnicities. This is AAPI is a huge chunk of people, right? Does that cause any issues? I mean, you know, South Asians come from a whole different community than, you know, someone from East Asia, right? So how are you able to kind of decipher these diff- like very different communities all into one group? We're not trying to make everybody into one group. We need to recognize that there's a diversity of our communities, Indian okay. Americans, Pakistani Americans, Sri right. Lankan Americans, you know, Bangladeshi Americans, you know, Koreans, Japanese, like we all have largely different backgrounds, but we all belong in the United States of America. And what we have in common is that America includes Asian Americans. Right. America has a diversity of stories about America, but also Asian Americans are a part of that story. So while we should celebrate our differences, we should also agree that collectively we have a we're, we're trying to do what we need to create, which is belonging in the United States. And that is what, that is what we should be doing. We keep calling ourselves a melting pot or, you know, all these terms, but actually to do it takes a lot of work and effort. And if we divide ourselves even further, we're not going to come together to do what, which is create an America that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational. We may have our differences, but at least we're doing something commonly together to create a country. Right. Can I ask you, I want to ask you something personal growing up. You, you grew up, you grew up in Houston, mainly, yeah. right? Growing up, and I've been talking to a lot, you know, on my podcast, a lot of South Asians. Um, I just interviewed Rahu Dubai, who was Times Hero of 2020, yeah. helped out the with the BLM protesters. Yeah, I'm sure you know him. And we were just talking about growing up and kind of being oblivious to being the other or being the minority. I don't know. And maybe that is the whole model minority myth that seeped into our lives. How did you feel growing up as a South Asian? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. So I just, I think there's some, a few things here. And, and I don't think my brother even knows enough about this. Like when we were growing up in, in 1978 and 79, we were reminded mm-hmm. that we were the other because of the Iran hostage crisis. And mm-hmm. our last name is Shah. And we used right. to have a lot of harassment in our community 
um, even in our neighborhood, um, for being Shah, that we were related to the Shah of Iran. And that was sort of the first entrance into understanding that we were not everybody else, right? Right. Um, And then the second part is my dad quit his job at one point because he felt like he was being discriminated in his, um, in his company, his engineering company. And he said, I am being treated differently and I'm not getting promoted because you tell me I have an accent or you tell me I can't do this, even though I get the jobs and you're not firing me, you keep telling me I can't get promoted. So he quit on, on that principle. And so it's sort of been a part of our work and what we've sort of grown up learning, but, right. but it is easy to, to live in the suburbs, which is where we lived in Houston to go to a school that was largely not very diverse. Right. Um, we were probably one of 15 kids in a, you know, high school of 4,000. Um, but it, it was, it's, it's, it's important that, you know, because people didn't they saw us as different, but they didn't see us as different. That easily people thought we were X, Y, or Z because right. you, you know, because you lived in this neighborhood or because you have these things. And I think sometimes we and our parents didn't want to raise, a, you know, they didn't want us to fight too much, right? They're like, keep your head down, just work really hard, just make it happen, right, Go right, school, right. Don't don't complain too much, don't you know? And and because of that, we sort of. Um, internalized a lot of the stuff that was happening to us and, and didn't talk about it because it was like, or maybe we didn't even realize it. We didn't realize it. Right. Cause I don't know about you, but like we hung out with Indian parents, Indian friends during the weekends and we went to school, right. There was not much in between. There wasn't a lot of other things happening. And so we didn't even think about it, but I think this is a real opportunity for us to say like, let's, let's dig in and understand. But I, for me, it was, it was much more visceral because of what happened in, you know, with, with the Iran hostile crisis. Right. Um, but then also when 9-11 came along, let me just tell you, my dad took out that flag that he had then and put it on the garage and was like, we're American. Good for him. Well, I, I, you know, I, I actually, I'm thinking on a side note about Sutma's sisters, Sujatha and Sangeetha, and I felt like they had the same kind of experience as you did. Because I feel like for, for me, your brother, uh, people kind of maybe a few years younger, I felt oblivious to it. I'm looking back at it now and having these aha moments and and now realizing maybe that wasn't what it seemed. The other thing that I'm realizing, and I've asked my parents this recently, and I'm glad you brought up your dad. I've asked my my father, same age as your dad, same engineering, Houston, um, about his experience in the 60s and 70s here, 80s, whatever. And he claims he's never felt any racism. And now, now that I feel like I'm realizing stuff, I can't believe that. I just feel like, Maybe he just wasn't aware. I don't, I don't know. I just, you know, he never got promoted. He, he was always kind of just quiet. He just wanted to make sure he kept his job. Right. And kept providing for the family because that's what our, what our parents did. Well, and they came here with nothing to go back to. Right. Right. Success wasn't for them to go back to India. Right. Um, They had to survive here and they couldn't tell their family that it wasn't working well. True. Right. So they 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 didn't talk about racism or anything else because they're like, we got to, you know, get our kids into college, go do these things. We will do whatever we need to do. Right. We'll move to that neighborhood. Even if we don't have enough money, we'll move to the edge of the neighborhood so we can pay. You know, we'll pay the taxes and we'll do all of those things. They did all of those things, but they didn't they didn't know their fight was survival. Their fight wasn't racism. 
they they gave us the uh, advantage and to fight now. Exactly. To, to exactly. podcast yeah. and, and to have a foundation and exactly. to do these things because they built this for us basically. Yeah. And they had to survive, right? They didn't they have, survive. they no. didn't have any alternative to it. For sure. So the anti-hate national network, you mentioned it, that is in currently Chicago, New York and California, Oakland. Yep. Is that going to be expanding? Yeah. So we want to pilot first. We want to understand what's needed. What does the community need? How do we do it? And as right. we pilot, we want to expand to other cities where there's larger AAPI populations and, and okay. see how we expand and what are ways. But the network is so we can learn from each other and make right. sure we're sort of sharing best practices. You know, how do we do something better? What do we need? to do because we need to connect to each other. We're all competing with each other for no reason when, when we're all facing a lot of the same I'm things. so glad you mentioned that. I'm so, so why shouldn't that. a South Asian community and an East Asian community be working together and saying we're safe, facing hate? Well, I also think, and this, this has come up a lot in my podcast with other guests, that even within our own communities, South Asians compete with other South Asians. We don't lift each other up. And I'm, I'm trying to understand that. Is it because of if you want to like go into history, is it because of the model minority myth? You know, there isn't enough room in the top and it's only a certain amount of people that can make it. What is it about our communities that do that to each other? Which is, I know a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. We should have a but, whole podcast on that. I think, listen, the, the way we can do it is starting with just a few inroads. Like how do we work together? What can we learn from each other? And for us as a foundation, it's making sure we're funding all of those organizations, not just one or the other, but funding right. various organizations. So we can create that network. We can invest in leaders um, that are from very diverse backgrounds and different places and showing that we can actually do work together. So that's the first round of investments we're making. Right. And I think if anything, the past few years has shown us that we need to work together. Exactly. Now, right? Exactly. And then also you guys unveiled the emergency relief fund. Yes. Right. In partnership with GoFundMe. Um, and that's to uh, drive the quick deployment of resources to victims of anti-opi uh, hate and violence, which is fantastic. You know, this is a question for people listening. How can I help? How can I get involved? What can I do? Um, and I think a lot of people in general feel hesitant to give money to a foundation. Yeah. Right. Where is it going? Yeah. What does this mean? Is it how does it have any impact? What can you say to that? So first, um, we're pretty transparent where our money is going. You get all that stuff online. I think it's important to recognize that we do not want to operate in non-transparency. We think it's important we let the world know what we are doing and why we are doing it. It's why we're having these public events. Right. Um, the GoFundMe page, we're partnering with somebody we know knows how to give money. GoFundMe, right? The reason right. we seeded it with a half a, half a million dollars is so it's a trusted partner we can work with and we can verify that the person who gets the money, you know, needs the money and that that's a partnership we're creating with GoFundMe for that reason. But then all of these organizations and grants we've given, they're all on our website, right? There's nothing, yeah. there's nothing there that you are not seeing. Um, right. And each of these organizations we're working with, not only have we vetted them, but they've been in their communities for many years. And these are people who have committed their lives to their communities. And um, I think it's so easy to want to be skeptical about giving to nonprofits and organizations. But I think we so sometimes forget the commitment each individual has made giving up much like what you were talking about. They might have become a lawyer, they might have become a doctor, but they give it up to go serve their community. And that is something we don't celebrate enough. The individuals right. that are giving their lives to doing something for their communities, we should celebrate them. And frankly, we should give them money to support them in the work that they're doing. So 
I have yeah. three ideas if people want to give. There's money, get bystander training. So if there is violence, you know what to do and how to be prepared for it. Go visit these action centers, these three action right. centers. Go see them. Go offer to volunteer there. Go see what you can do with them because there are actual needs for communities of volunteering to help translate, volunteering to take somebody to a doctor, volunteering to, to be a safety ambassador. This is stuff that we can all do in our time and we should do it because that's how we can give to our communities. I would love to check out the New York yeah. New York one before I leave. And I, and I hope, hopefully there'll be one in Texas at, at some we'll point. We'll work on it. So yes, I'll, I'll be there. So, and then current projects, I know you're doing a million things, but anything else that maybe you haven't talked about or currently going on with the foundation that you want to talk about? So a few things that we are doing at the foundation. One, I think narrative change, really okay. thinking about. So part of what we talked about in education is telling the Asian American story as part of Americans as part of the American story. But secondly, how are we being portrayed in the media? How are we being portrayed by journalists? How are we being portrayed, you know, in in uh, think tanks and other places? Making sure that we address three myths. One, the perpetual foreigner. Just because mm -hmm. my family might come from India doesn't mean I am Indian. It means I am American. Where, where are you? Where are you really from? Right? Yeah, exactly. Where, where are you really we all from? get asked that question, right? Where are you from? Where are you from? I'm like, I started. Yeah, but doing really, this. where are you really from? I'm like. West Virginia. I see. I tell people that when people are like, where are you from? I'm like, Texas. And I go, I go down that rat hole with them. Right. Yeah. And they're like, where? Houston, Harris County. And then I'll go as far as, and then I'll ask the question, which is, are you asking about my heritage? Right. I'm saying, because if you want to ask about the heritage, ask about the heritage, but to assume that I am not American is yeah. something that we need to address the perpetual foreigner myth. Every Asian, East Asian, South Asian, Southeast Asian is facing the same question. Can I tell you something, Sonal? My seven-year-old, it's, it's so interesting to learn from a, from a child and you, and you realize how early it all starts, yeah. you know, cause it's, it's, you don't think it's coming from your home. We don't talk about being just Indian or just American. I'm always saying we're both, we are very American, but our Indian, you know, you know trying to explain it to her, but she'll come back from school asking, wait, I'm brown. Like it's coming from her already. And whether that's from us, TV, school, I, I have, I really don't know. Yeah. You know, it's already in there. Well, I, I'm brown. So that, does that mean we're American? I'm like, this is insane how right. early it starts. And I don't think it's from, I don't know, maybe something I have said, who knows? Yeah, it really I mean, start it's, early. it's sort of remembering that, like constantly reminding that this is not a, this doesn't go away and every generation is going to face the next year. You and I faced it when we were growing up and right. it, the, your kids are facing it now and this is going to continue. But changing that narrative supremely matters. We are not the perpetual foreigners. It is a multicultural democracy. Let's be clear about the United States. Like it's an experiment, right. but it's an incredible experiment. And that's why this country, that's why the U.S. matters, right? Uh, yeah, it, it just seems it seems so obvious, right? It seems like a, such an obvious thing we have all known for so long, yet we're still having to repeat this narrative and story over and over again Correct. to remind everyone. Correct. It's crazy. Yeah. So holding holding that accountable is something that we are working on. And how do we do that? Calling out hate when we see it. Right. Making sure that scientists that are. Chinese American aren't being targeted in universities because of their heritage, not because of their work, 
and not because they've done anything wrong, but because of their heritage, right? Making sure we're calling out where we see things. When Andrew Yang was running in New York City, there were a lot of these tropes going around. You know, you don't have to support or you you, you don't have to support a candidate, but to use those tropes is not really the thing to do. And it's important that we call that out. So we're building that capacity to become the place where we're calling that out and making sure that that narrative change incorporates Americans in a different way with Asian descent as a part of that. Right. Like the American definition exactly. over and over and over again, guys. Exactly. It's been this way for a while. Awesome. So people can obviously go to their website to find yeah. out a yeah. lot more. And then email us if there's stuff on there, okay. there's place on the website to say, if you have ideas, send it to us. Like we're open to ideas. We're, we're new, right? The beauty of being new is you can take ideas as they're coming in. We don't have to have it's this exciting. all worked out. We have to just, we have to learn and adapt as the, as, as, as we need to. Are your parents helping out? My parents are super, um, I think they're intimidated by saying, should we, can we, can we, can we do something? Um, but, you know, we live in a community that's uh, very Asian right now in Houston and, right. uh, and, and they make an effort now to go see the neighbors and go have conversations. And they think about their AAPI heritage and not just their Indian heritage, which has actually been which great. Is a big deal. Yeah, it's, it's a, a big great. deal for our parents, our age to, to do that because at, I mean, most, of our parents don't think that way. Yet. Exactly. Not, not due to their fault is just access and, and, and listening to stuff like this, you know, exactly. um, where I think your parents are a little bit more open and have been involved with the community as we all know. Um, okay. I know you probably hate talking about yourself, so I won't embarrass you too much. We're going to go a little bit into your background, just slight. I was reading about you. I was like, wow, Sonal's like resume is really long. This is going to be insane. So <laughs> You're, you founded Georgetown University's Beak Center for Social Impact and Innovation. Yeah. You were there for a while, right? Yep. Um, I know you've worked in private and public sectors uh, with Obama, of course. Oh, my God, we miss him. Right. I have tons of questions here, but, you know, I know you have a job. So I, I really I wanted to ask you this. You were in 2020. You served as the National Policy Director for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Judge. Buddha Jedge. I, I apologize, uh, Mayor Pete. And I feel like I can imagine being on any campaign trail in 2020 would be, for a lack of better words, crazy. Is there any interesting or fun stories you could talk about during that time? You know, um, what's very funny when you go on a campaign, you have no idea when you start where it's going to go, right? No one knew Mayor Pete. Like we sort of heard Mayor Pete, but nobody knew who he was. And so when I got there, people were like, why would you go to that campaign? And then you, had, <laughs> you had these big names. You had Cory Booker, you had Kristen Gillibrand, you have Elizabeth Warren. He's like, why would you go to that one? It's Indiana. Like right. who from Indiana, small town mayor from Indiana. And it was, it was one, it was really great to be in Indiana because it sort of gave you a different perspective of being on a campaign and what it means to um, South Bend when I was there. But to also be with a candidate who's growing, right? And who's, who's learning, who's adapting, who's seeing, who's going out right. into the community. He was the first LGBTQ candidate, you know, running for president. It was amazing. And so what, what I, what I loved about it is like, for me, it was like, I needed to step in and do something. Thing. I felt like our democracy was at a crossroads. I couldn't sit and be sitting at, you know, in a university saying, Let's, I'm just going to train the next generation and not participate in what I thought was just, you know, a moment in time where we had to address our democracy. So going to work there 
And I was like, just to be careful, I'm the 50 year old with every person on that campaign who's 20. Like twenty. I mean, girl, you look thirty five. And so fine. you you sort of like you you feel like the grandmother sometimes because like <laughs> you're so young. But at the same time, um, you had an ability to offer something that um, they had not seen. People they could right. connect to, or people we could bring on, and groups of right. people that were working together. So what I loved about it, it was like people I never met, but people who I I still keep in touch with who are incredible. I learned a lot about how young people use technology and knew nothing about. I still can't move as fast as they. Do. Do they make you go on TikTok or anything weird? Oh God, no, no TikTok. Um, <laughs> but but I do think I do think what was um, what what's so one of the best you know stories I can take uh, from from what I saw with Pete is he was not afraid to go on to places like Fox News and you see it still today yeah. and have conversations with audiences and I think what I learned there is like go where it's uncomfortable because right. it's how or unexpected it's how right we're gonna, like, yeah it's how we're going to engage and how we're going to make a difference and and going onto campaign trails i mean gosh good god i cannot eat all of the things that come at you when you're on a campaign trail it's crazy um but i can't even imagine i was like i'm sure you have many war stories oh, to tell no thank you i was like i think i gained like 15 <laughs> pounds forget covid like that sort of the campaign trail was sort of the worst of it all <gasps> that's amazing no he looked from an outsider's point of view he just seemed i know this sounds silly to say it this way but he just seemed really cool he is really cool. And he's just, like, uh, just a cool guy. He's genuine, right? Like what you see is what you get. There's not a hidden Pete or a hidden secretary. Right. Judge. There's this, that's who he is. What you see on TV is what you get. Right. Right. And I know you're on the board and advisor for, I don't even, I can't even count how many you're, I don't know how you're standing up. So it'll be <laughs> like, this is insane. Um, but all that will be on my notes. No need to bore you with your amazing background. I just want to ask you a few things that I probably Please. would never get to ask you if we met up at a family event because, you know, we never have time for this stuff. So, you know, I know your family well. You guys have been giving back to the community since day one. And, you know, as I look down your resume and LinkedIn at all your roles that you've had throughout your life, two questions come to mind. One you know, when you, when you were taking on these different roles and positions and, and working with these different organizations, how did you know which way to turn or were you turning where your gut was just telling you? Yeah. I mean, that's such a great question. I don't know that I knew. I think, I think about it more now as to like, what do I like doing? But then it was just like, that just, feels like the right thing to do. And, you know, when I went to war work at the Center for American Progress and John Podesta was first setting it up, I was like, it just felt like the right thing to do. And then so I called up four people I knew and I was like, hey, I want to go work there. What do I need to do? And, okay. you know, somebody got me connected into that. Or with Goldman Sachs, it was, you know, it was interesting. Sometimes it's things that just come your way, right? Like I worked in Sarajevo after a conflict and one of my friends was working at Goldman. And she's like, you really should come work here. And I was like, why Goldman? Like, I mean, I'm, listen, I'm not in yeah. finance. But she's like, listen, I'm just telling you, come work here. I'm here. I was working in the U.S. government for 20 years. She had worked at the State Department. And she's like, just come and try it. You'll like it. It's a great group of people. You know, the, the chairman really wants to do something on the environment. So that was more of a leap of faith. Like, I had no idea what that was going to be. It was just a leap of faith because I trusted her. Right. And it sort of was like, okay, let's try it. What's the worst you do after a year? You don't like it. You leave. Like, right. okay. Um, you know, it's, so a lot of people don't think that way, right? So a lot of people yeah. would be scared to be like, okay, after a year, then what, you know, what happened? So it's also 
part of your personality. And yeah, part of maybe... like you sort of take a leap of faith at some right. point, right? I went to right. Sarajevo in 1995 after the bombing, and it was like, I don't know, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't work out, who knows what it's going to be like, but you sort of figure your way out. And so I personally, what I know about myself is I like the startup phase of things, like the okay. the creation, the sort of messiness of it, not the perfectness of it. And 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 now when I sort of seek things out, I think about where is there constant change and constant innovation where I can do and where can I help sort of bring things together, which is what I know how to do. So I like that part of that. And I, I sort of enjoy uh, enjoy it a bit. So maybe it won't last forever, but you have to be willing to take a risk about your career. And there were a lot of lateral moves in there, right? Not everything right. was a st- upward step anywhere. It was sort of like, sometimes it was lateral and you just did because when I went from to Google, like I didn't know anything about technology. I mean, my brother still laughs at me and thinks I'm a moron. He's like, you know, you don't know anything about technology. Why would you go work at Google? It's fine. But, You're funnier but you than figure it out, right? And you figure yeah. out you figure out what you need to know and you figure out how to surround yourself by people that are smarter than you. Was there any any role that maybe you regret not taking? No. No. No, you don't really know what you don't know, right? Right, right. I sort of am like, you know, it is what it is, and we are here, so we should just do. You're here. You're here at at this point. Exactly. Enjoy, enjoy the process, and enjoy the work, and then you know, if you don't like it, move on. So the internet <laughs> says that, you know, you are, and we all know this. You're one of, you know, you're a global leader on social impact and innovation, which are two words that are thrown around quite a bit. A lot, actually. And different people claim it, say it, work, whatever it is. I want you, someone that has actually kind of been through the dirt and gone through it all, what does that mean to you now? What is social impact and innovation now? What does that mean to you? So I think when we think about impact, we throw that word around like it's like, you know, just something spaghetti we're throwing on the wall. And I'm going to have impact. I'm going to do this. And I think when you want to have impact, you have to think hard about what it is that you're trying to solve. What's the problem? Not what is your solution, but what's the problem? Are we actually thinking about this? Who are we talking to? How are we thinking about it? What are we trying to impact? And then holding yourselves actually, holding ourselves accountable to that. Are we doing something? Are we actually making a difference? I, it, it bothers me when it's just a, it's a term of art that everybody uses and everybody's like, I'm doing impact. And it's like, great. You volunteered and went somewhere. Like that is not impact. Impact is when you've had to stick it through and seeing the hard times and the times when it has worked and the, and the times it has failed because right. that's what it takes to have impact. It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody, it's a PR campaign, right? Right. But it's hard. Impact is a hard thing to do. So make a commitment if you really care about impact. Innovation right. is needed because sometimes we get stuck in our ideas. We want to sell our idea. We don't actually want to solve for impact. And right. why we need to innovate is to say, Am I doing the thing that the community needs? Am I doing something that is making a difference? Am I not? Or do we need to change the way we approach it? Because I've been doing this for 15 years and it's still the same. I'm still saying if a little bit more money, I can do this thing and it still hasn't been affected. So maybe it's time to innovate around it and not wholesale throw the baby out with the bathwater. But slight modifications can go a really long way to make it change. And we we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I asked that question because I feel like I hear that again, a lot of the podcast about impact and, and change. And I'm like, what does this all mean guys? Like who's actually doing this stuff? And 
And the it just, sad, it's, it's out there in social media all the time. And the and sad like, part is, is the like people garbage. that are doing really good work gets lost because they're not, they're not the PR campaign. Of course. Right? And, of course. And so I urge anyone that's thinking about it, when someone says it, dig deep, ask yeah. the questions. How long have they been doing it? Where did they, you know, what are they doing? How are they approaching the ideas? What are they trying to do? And, and has it, you know, what have they learned in the process? If someone can't tell you they've had a failure, you got problems. Because anything with impact has had failures. You have to. If right. you don't have failure, you're like, it's kind of like saying my marriage has no problems. Exactly. Well, you're lying. Sorry. Or my family's <laughs> perfect, right? There's no, there was no such thing, right? It's like we no, all have our own challenges. Right. Like that's, there's, there's three filters on that, yeah. by the way. Yeah. To that question, to, to, in order to dig deep and to really understand impact, I kind of think, and, and I don't, let me know if you agree with me. I kind of think that takes maturity, experience and age, right? Yep. Like it, it takes time to get to that point. I don't know. Again, I'm just generalizing, but can you do that in your twenties? I don't know. In thirties, is, is it a matter of age time? I think you can get started in your twenties, right? Like I, I mean, I'll just give you my own examples, right? I was in my twenties when I went to Sarajevo. Um, setting up a central bank currency, like I knew anything about that. Right. But you had, but I was working with people who had done it for 15 or 20 years. And so knowing sort of what your strength is and how to bring other people's strength to the table. My strength was that I was willing to go to communities that nobody else wanted to go to and was too, were too afraid to go to the Serb areas or the Croat areas or other areas that were dangerous. I was willing to do that, but then I can bring that information back and work with the, with those that have had who had more experience to actually help think about how to move a process forward. That was right. not my skill set, but I knew I could get the information to say, what do we need to do next? And then I could go relay that information. So knowing your strengths and knowing how to build upon other people's strengths, I think too often today we're taught to be our own, you know, we're the solution to every problem, but mm-hmm success is when you know that other people need to come along with you and you need to work in conjunction. And smarter with people, right? Exactly. You should, you should be good leaders, yeah. have smarter people around them. I would and think. wisdom matters, right? Like there are people right. that understand that they historically have seen things being said and done that didn't get done and, right. and recognizing that we need wisdom. Don't be mad at someone because they've been doing it for 20 years, understand what they know and see right. what can be modified and changed. And that really, Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's kind of like your story learning from the young kids on the campaign, right? Like we all just need to learn from each other because we do forget what it is to be 20, 25. Yeah. We do forget that feeling, that those emotions, that that sentiment. And so, yeah, I, everybody I we, can't, at, we can't be ageist. Everybody <laughs> at 20 is impatient. I was impatient. I'm not going to blame somebody else for being impatient. Um, the job is how do you channel that impatience to progress? Right. Okay. I'm going to ask you a cheesy one, a cheesy podcast question, but I'm never going to ask you this in person because we're going to be dancing and drinking next time I see you. Ultimate goal for Sonal Shah. Is there one? Like if, if you were to ever retire, which I feel like that's not possible, but you know, say one day I'm going to move to the Caribbean and, and chill. Looking back, what would you be happy ending your career with? Hmm. That's a hard question. I, That's a, I mean, honestly, it's a hard and question. And cheesy. And cheesy too. I don't, um, part of it is I think, uh, I think when I think about myself, it's like, I want to always be known for being curious, right? That I was always curious 
I was always trying to understand what else was happening. What else should I be curious about? I don't want to become static. Right. Right. Even if I retire and go live in the Caribbean, I don't want to be static. Right. I want to right. be, I want to be curious. I want to be able to ask the next set of questions and not, not get so comfortable that I don't think I can learn. Sounds like something from your parents a little bit. I know my parents, man. I think, I think my parents, like, make, wait, my parents make me look lazy. My, my parents make me look lazy. I just want to be clear about this. Do you feel like you're like your mom or your dad really quick? I can't tell. I personality wise. I, I, personality. Uh, personality, probably, uh, my dad, uh, but my mom's no, no, you know, no shrinking flower. Trust me. I mean, like, to be dealing like with your entire, to be the center of your entire family. There's no way. Yeah. yeah. She's <laughs> like, she's like that quiet power that sort of gets what she wants, but you don't know that you've just been bamboozled into doing what she wants you oh, to do. I love her. Which she's is so awesome. Sweet. Okay. Last question. Is there anyone that you would love to work with that you haven't yet? Oh gosh. Uh, In any capacity, whether that's with the foundation or for the fun of it. You know, I would, what I would love to do, and I, I, I don't have this in my genes, but I would love to, I would love to learn from a musician. Because nice. I think there's something about music that is some that's so deep and ingrained in us. And right. I I'm not a musician by any means. I, I I appreciate music not enough to be honest. I don't spend enough time listening to it, which I should. But okay. I would love to pick up an instrument or pick up you know how to play or learn from a musician. Sort of how they how they are able to find that peace in that moment when they play. Mm. They're doing lots of other things. Like you know, Yo Yo Ma is not like no shrinking flower, but like when you see him play, it's like he's in that moment, and there's right. a zone therein. So I would love to be around musicians and to sort of learn from them because I think there's something there that is just so incredibly amazing and like meditative. Yeah, in a way. exactly. And just. I so that makes me transcending everything. Are you transcending right? Like kind of above on another plane that we're not on and that you want to be on. I mean, I've always wanted to be part of a band. By the way, my brother at forty five now, forty six years old, started. He he's my music is kind of. He started DJing. I was like, I'm going to be a doctor, but I've always wanted to DJ. So he DJs at random like parties. I love it. It is really good. That is so cool. That is so cool. I love it because I I want to start another podcast focusing on music eventually. And so you got to say who though, who's your band? Who's your, who's your musician? If you had to meet If I were to do it, I would go to sort of, um, I I sort of love uh, jazz and classical. And I would go work with jazz and classical because I think when I watch jazz, you know, jazz musicians, I love how they're just in it. They're like, you watch their pieces, you watch them play and they're just in it. Like there's just nothing about them that is just like they're playing because they got to play. They're in it 130%. They don't care about anything else. If anyone's watching or not, they don't care. They really don't. Right. And the classical musicians are the same. Like they're sort of, when they're playing, they're just in their zone. And I, I want to, I just love watching it because I'm like, I can't imagine what that feels like. I know. Okay. Well, you got to pick up an instrument. I have a guitar. I know like five chords. Yeah. We're going to start a band. I mean, listen, I, I will. I would, I, I would do it. I, this is the one thing I would go take lessons. I, you know what? Honestly, if I had one superpower, it would be to sing. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm like the worst singer ever, but like that's the one thing I've always wanted to. I'm trying to force my kids to become musicians right now. So. That's amazing. 
let's see. I was like, I don't care about what you like. You have to do it for me. <laughs> it doesn't matter well, my about niece your own just opinion. picked up the cello. So I'm like, okay, well, this could be interesting. She did. Yeah. She's like, that's the that's instrument amazing. I want to play. And I was like, cello. She's like, yes. I'm like, okay. She's very, very sweet. You guys, please follow the Asian American Foundation by going to taaf.org. Lots of great information on there about their work, their partners, their events, anti-hate and belonging, and how you can get involved. It really is time for Asian Americans to unite and claim power. As always, you can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast, Tuckered Out with Ami.com. I desperately need some lemon water and a bed. So I'm going to peace out. But thank you guys for listening. Love ya. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>